This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon will be teaching the message. So not too long ago, I was reading and uh, came across an article put out by AP. It was an article that was talking about a special naming ceremony in Mumbai, India. 285 girls were going to go through the ceremony and receive a certificate where they were going to give a, be given a new name. Now, the reason for this is because their given name at birth was the name Makusha or Makushi, which basically means unwanted. Unwanted. Nakusha or Nakushi. There we go. Unwanted. They were called unwanted because girls are not valued in that society. In fact, girls are often seen as a mistake, second class. Us is why there's a justification for girls to be aborted or abandoned or mistreated because they are unwanted. And so these girls who were named unwanted by their family were now going to have a new name, a new name that would be celebrated there at their school in this renamed ceremony. So 285 girls with their, their hairs braided and the bows and their best dress and, and, and just looking absolutely beautiful. 285 girls were coming along and they were going to be receive a certificate that gave them their new name. They chose names like very tough and prosperous and, and beautiful and good. One of those young girls who had been named unwanted by her grandfather said this regarding her new name. She said, she said, now in school, my classmates and friends will be calling me by this new name, and that makes me very happy. My new name makes me very happy. Names are important. They're personal. They captivate who we are. They are a picture of our identity. We are our name. And so we get it why these girls want a new name. They don't want to be called unwanted. They need a new name. And we're going through a series that's talking about how an encounter with God is like receiving a new name, a new identity. Names are important. Now, we have a saying that we use quite often. It's a phrase that goes something like this. So-and-so made a name for himself, so-and-so made a name for herself, and then what we usually do is to go on to describe what that person achieved, right? What that person achieved in industry, what that person achieved with wealth, what that person achieved in their family or in their community. Such-and-such made a name for themselves, and what we refer to is the achievements, the accomplishments, the successes of the individual who made a name for themselves. And we tie very closely with making a name for myself, we tie very closely with this concept that in order to be significant, in order to be perfect in this world, and to be loved, and to be valued, and to be honored, and to be cherished, we have to do something. We have to perform. We have to to give something of value that makes a difference. And what we find is that we have this belief that in order to have a name that makes a difference, it's very much connected to our performance, to our achievement, to what we are doing and how we are doing and how we are acquiring wealth and fame and notoriety. Make a name for myself. I believe that's what we all try to do in some way or form. 
We try to make a name for ourselves. And in trying to make a name for ourselves, what we do is we get into the trap of attaching our, our value to our performance. We attach value for ourselves based on how we do according to whatever goals we want to achieve. This is an issue that's addressed in a book that uh, some of you may be aware of. We, it's been a while since we've done this book here within our church family, The Search for Significance, Robert S. McGee. And Robert McGee addresses the problem, and it is a problem, of performance, the performance trap, of basing my self-worth, my happiness, on my performance. What I do determines who I am. What I do determines how I feel about myself, whether I succeed or not. And the extreme version of this performance trap is perfectionism. Perfectionism, right? A perfectionist says, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And on the one hand, it's not bad. The desire to do things well is not bad. What is dangerous and what causes problem is to attach value, self-worth to that performance. When we define ourselves by making a name for ourselves, we end up in misery. In the book, Search for Significance, McGee talks about a lady named Karen. Karen was a perfectionist. She lived the perfect life. She dressed immaculately. Her house was spick and span. Her children were clean and well-dressed. Her husband behaved himself, as all perfect husbands are supposed to do. She was a force of nature when it came to leading the various volunteer groups that she led. She led a perfect life. Karen was a perfectionist, demanding that people conform and pull together to the standards that she demanded. The problem is, is that in this perfectionist, there was a dark side. And the dark side manifested itself in this way. If you did not fall in line with what Karen wanted or what Karen thought you should do, you endured her wrath. You endured her snide and cruel remarks. You endured her cut. If you did not conform to perfection, Karen let you know and let you know in a hurtful way. This perfectionism had a dark side, and the dark side was destructive. It was destructive to those relationships closest to her. It was no surprise, McGee says, that Karen's husband left her. He couldn't take it anymore. He could not take living in the prison of perfectionism, living with the fear that his, nothing was ever good enough for his wife. And the truth be told is that while Karen was per perfect and everyone wondered how he could leave such a perfect life, the truth is it wasn't perfect for him and it wasn't a place to live and thrive. In fact, Karen's desire for perfectionism left bodies strewn all over in her wake. It was a destroyer of people and relationships and particularly those relationships closest to her, her husband and her children. See, Karen was trying to make a name for herself, and in striving to make a name for herself, she had given herself to the lie that her value and her worth, her value and her worth, her significance 
was determined on her performance. And what she was coming to discover is that that's not how it works because she never felt good about anything in life. Why? Because she could always find that one thing or two things that weren't exactly right. She wasn't able to relax and enjoy the pleasures of life because she was always concerned about what was not right, this hypercritical attitude. She never could relax because of failures and things that didn't come together as she wanted them to come together destroyed her, gutted her. See, perfectionism leads to anxiety, controlling behaviors, depression. Because what you find out is that if you strive to be perfect, you will always fail. You will always fail. And in failure, you, because you've determined that my performance reflects who I am, then in failure, it's not just that that failed, it means that I'm a failure. Now today we're going to talk about a woman from the Bible that was set free from the performance trap, set free from this notion that it was all on her to make a name for herself and to fulfill what she felt she was called to do in this world, to fulfill her identity. This woman's name is Sarai. Last week we introduced to you her husband, Abraham. Remember him? Abram. Abram was a man that was blessed by God. If you recall, the message was Abram, whose name means uh, exalted father. Well, he wasn't able to, to produce a child with his wife, so he wasn't much of an exalted father until what? Until he received by faith the promise of God, and he became Abraham, father of a multitude. And what we learned last week was this, that identity change comes when we believe in God, and our faith our faith doesn't have to be top quality. What we, what we learned is that, that what's important isn't the quality of our faith, the, the depth of our faith. What's important is the object of our faith. Better a little faith in the right big God than a big faith in a bunch of little gods that will not deliver on the promises that we seek in life. In fact, that's a lesson that those of you who had elementary and preschool kids, that's what they're learning right now. They're learning the story of the mustard seed that Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of the mustard seed, because that faith is grounded in God, the living God who's able to do what he, whatever he wants because he is God, well, that faith, if you say to a mountain, go, it will get out, jump, and jump into the sea. That's what our kids are learning. And so if you have the opportunity today as you drive home, ask them about faith the size of a mustard seed and let them know that, hey, yeah, we learned something similar. Last week, when we talked about Abraham. Abraham was the example of faith. What we're going to discover is that Sarai becomes the example of how to live by faith and how to receive the promises of God by submitting our lives, not to our, our own means, to receive the blessing by our own means, but instead to rely on God, to submit ourselves to God's will, to His way, to submit ourselves to receiving His promises. Genesis chapter 17, let's go through this together. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, king of peoples will come from her. Sarai, princess, low P, becomes Sarah, 
Princess, capital P, through God's blessing. Understand this, that the promise that was given to Abraham was a promise that did not involve him alone. We talk about that. We say, Father Abraham and many sons, if you were in Sunday school and sang that song, we focus on Abraham. But we we can't forget that without Sarah, there's no fulfillment of promise, right? Uh, The husband needed the wife in order to fulfill the promise of God. And so she was a co-heir, a co-participant in the promise of God. And what we discover is that her name, Sarah, Sarai is a name that comes from the derivative of Sar, which means princess. It's the feminine version, but it's the diminutive version. Her name means uh, princess with a P. That's her, that's her name. It's, her, it's, her, it's like calling a, 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 a girl lady, but we don't mean that she's a lady by title. We just call her lady. Well, this is a better example. Uh, how many of you heard the name Rex for a boy's name, right? Well, Rex means king. But if you call your son Rex, you're not saying he is a king, though he may act like it at times. No, you're saying his name is king, that, that's, that's his name, that's what you've called him, that's, that's who he is, but he isn't the king. He's not the king with a capital K, right? Well, Sarai's name means princess. It means commander, it means one who is capable, one who is able. She's a princess in her home. And we find Sarai living by this, this way. She, she lived to make a name for herself by her own means, by her own skills, by her own wit. How do we know this? Well, a great example is that when she and Abraham were promised a son and she was unable to conceive, she's the one who comes up with the idea, hey, Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant? Why don't you take my slave? Who is my property? Who you taking her as your wife is the same as me because that's how it worked then. This is a legal move. And any child we have from, from, from her becomes ours. And that's what Abraham did. And he had a, a child called Ishmael through Hagar. And why we might say, well, that was a legal move. That seemed like a brilliant move done by Sarai, the princess, small p, manipulating, finding a way by her own wits. Well, we see that while that was a legal move, that was not a faith move. That was not what God had called them to do. And we see as you read the story, nothing but trouble comes from this. Nothing but trouble comes from this. Discord, discord in Abraham's household. And in fact, the people that come from Ishmael eventually become a people that are hostile to the people that will come from the child of promise, Isaac. Because Sarai lived by her own resources and tried to manipulate things by her own means and tried to control things and tried to help along God and come up with a plan based on her terms, based on her strength, what happened? It was a mess. It was a mess. She chose not to trust God. While she believed in God, while she believed in her husband, she chose to, I think I can help them along and not trust the plan. But at this point, what we discover is that Sarah comes to the point where she can't have children of her own. As I said last week, Apostle Paul says it nicely, her body was good as dead. How about that for a description? She'd be old, Right? Her body was good as dead when it came to childbearing. Yet this is the time in which God says, Hey, now learn. Abraham, you will be a father of a multitude. Sarai, you will no longer be Princess Loop, 
but you will be Princess Capital P. I will make you the queen. I will elevate your status, and the elevation of your status, the fulfillment of your potential will be done not by your own means, not by your own control, not by you making a name for yourself, but instead it will be by you submitting to my plan, giving yourself to your husband and the work that you have both been called to do together. Sarai becomes Sarah, and that shows us that God releases our fullest potential when we receive His blessing by faith. And just, just hold on to that for a minute. God releases our fullest potential. How? Not by our performance, but by us giving ourselves to His will and His calling in our life, submitting ourselves to follow His resources, trusting in Him. Sarai becomes Sarah and sees her fullest potential, her calling in life, the promise of God released in her life when she gives herself to the plan that God had for her life. Now, while Abraham is given to us as an example of how it is to live by faith, Abraham has given us an example in, in other parts of Scripture that says, here's the example, the number one example of how God makes us right through faith how we have a status change when we believe what God promises us. And so we understand this on this side of the, of, of the New Testament and the Bible, on this side of history. We say, okay, the Bible says that if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He died on the cross, that He rose again third day to new life, that if we believe in that, we are able to now be made right with God. It's a grace that we don't deserve, but we are able to receive the gift of God and our status changes from one who deserves death to one who gets to escape the punishment that's due each one of us for our sin. There's a status change, and Abraham is the example by which we're to look to as one who was justified, made right by faith. But his wife, Sarah, actually takes it to the next level. She's the example of what it means to live by faith. She's the example for us to see what it means to, not only we have a new status when it comes to our position with God, but we have a new identity that we can live in, a new identity which means that our, our fullest potential, our calling life is released by the power of God when we submit ourselves to live by faith day to day, when we submit ourselves to not try to put the value of who we are, where we're going, based on our own means, by our own measures, by our own talents and controls, but by giving ourselves to obedience to what God is doing. Now, the Apostle Peter is going to give us this example in dressing women and wives and pointing to an example of how they're to live and the qualities that they're to look to foster in their life. This is what he's going to say. 1 Peter 3, 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. I'm going to just stop here right now. Notice he's saying, uh, he's not saying uh, Christian women aren't supposed to wear makeup, do their hair, uh, look presentable, look sharp. He's not saying that, is he? No, what is he saying? He's saying, don't make the focus of your beauty. Don't make the focus of the quality of who you are. Don't make the, the essence of how you're going to make an impression in life be based on your outward beauty, on the things that you control. He's saying, remember, don't be a Sarai. Don't be a perfectionist. But he says this, what? 
He says, verse 4, the beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing a jewel holdery or fine clothes. Instead, first Peter, there we go, thank you. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Verse 5. We're having a hard time finding verse 5. There we go. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, verse 6, like Sarah, there's the example, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And I hold on to that whole thing, give way to fear. What is it that motivates us to be perfect? It's a fear of failure. It's a fear of not being valuable and worth it. Well, what he's saying here is this. He says, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, like Sarah, remember the qualities that you're to, to look to, all those inner qualities of a, of a quiet and gentle spirit, of a commitment to trust in God, not to, to force God to make things happen in your life, not to, to, to create results that you know everyone needs to have in their life, right? We, uh, you know, that's what happens sometimes. We, we, we see stuff and we're like, oh, that's not right. We need to have it happen this way. And so I know I've been praying about it, but God, I think I'm the answer to my own prayer, so I'm going to interfere, right? I'm going to get into it. And unfortunately... Um, ladies sometimes struggle with this a little more than, than the guys. We all struggle with this, but it's ladies too. I, I remember a comedy that says, you know, talking about mothering. And he said, you know, the word mother is in the word smother. You know, you don't never heard of someone called spothered to death, right? <laughs> but I think he's pointing to something that's it's a reality, right? The, the tendency for things to go right and be perfect is, is, is innate. And I think uh, ladies tend to have that even deeper when it comes to their family and, and, and stuff like that. And so he's reminding him, hey, it's not upon you being Sarai. Instead, be Sarah, one who submits herself to trust in God. The full potential is released not by your manipulations and by you making it happen. Your full potential, your full calling is released when you give yourself to God's plan for your life. And that plan is discovered when you daily seek Him and obey His Spirit and live by the resources that His Spirit provides. Your new identity comes when you submit. This is for all of us. When we submit ourselves and Sarah provides the example of what it means to live by grace and to live in this new identity and to fulfill our fullest potential, our fullest potential. And so I have a summary statement here, I think, that captures it all here. It's a, a summary statement, a quote that I think gets it. Sarah shows us that when we trust God with our lives, we receive a new God-given identity that releases our fullest potential. See, the childless Sarai, now remember, what's that name? Princess with a little P, one who had everything under control. She was, we could call her Queen Bee, right? Sarai became the princess mother. How? She becomes Sarah. How? Of a great nation. How? Because she trusted God with her life. And she gave herself to what God was doing plainly in her life and her husband's life. And together, he was the example of faith and she was the example of faithfulness. So the staff and I were having lunch at Skyline the other day, and we were chatting about all sorts of stuff, and the topic of uh, identity theft came up. How many of you have had someone steal your identity and make charges on your card, on your uh, bank account, and 
Doesn't it make you mad? I hate it. First of all, I hate people stealing from me and from you too, I promise. I hate that. Then I hate the hassle, right? you got to cancel the card. And then you've got to call the fraud department because that's where they transfer you, and that takes forever. And then they've got to verify that these were fraudulent charges before they reimburse you. And you have to wait for that. And I get nervous. I'm, I'm weird. I guess we have to learn. I start sweating about money stuff, and I'm like, are they going to pay me back? Are they, what's what's going to happen? I need to know. Da, da, da. And then you have to get a new card issued, which means that you can't use your card for at least a few days. And if your bank's really good, they, they can get it to you quick. But I hate it. And the number one thing I hate is that usually when someone steals your identity and takes your money, they never get caught. You're like, can I call the FBI? Can I call the CIA? Can I, who can I call? Because I want this person tracked down. They should not be charging donuts to my name at a 7-Eleven in you know, El Paso, Texas. You know, that's how it works. And so that just, that just gets me nuts. I hate identity, identity theft. And it's just a reality of our life that we have to work through. Now, there was a book written by a lady called Elise Fitzpatrick, and she made this observation. She said, you know, when we come to think of it, while we all don't like identity theft, it's a, a reality of our world today, while we hate that, just take a moment to think about if you are a Jesus follower, if you call yourself a Christian, exactly what you're saying. You are claiming the identity of Christ. That's what Christian means, one who carries Christ. You are claiming the identity of Christ. In fact, because you're a Christian, the Bible says that now you are considered a child of God based upon what the Son of God has done for you. That you didn't earn this, you didn't deserve this, you weren't good enough, pretty enough, fast enough, talented enough, wealthy enough, whatever enough you want to put in there, you weren't enough to have it, but instead it was given to you as a gift undeserved, and you were able to receive it by belief, by, by accepting it by faith. And you can, guess what, live in that identity. So in many ways, those of us who are Christians are living by someone else's identity and have life promised to us to the fullest because of that identity. And so I like what she says this. This is what she said. Not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you're invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits this identity brings. Not only do you get the name of Christ, but you're able to access the privilege that being a Christ follower, a Christ carrier has. When your identity is the identity of the, of the Son of God, you're able to be now counted as forgiven you're able to be counted as one who is given life. The Bible says you are an heir of the promises of God to receive all the benefits that come with it. We're able to empty the checking account of God's grace. And that is not just a status change. It's not just like, oh, that's my get-out-of-hell card. No, it's more than that. It's, a, it's an identity change that means that there's a life trajectory change. It means a purpose change, and it means that the full purpose of your life, the full potential of your life is released, not by your own means, but supernaturally as you, as the Bible says, live by the Holy Spirit. As you submit yourself daily to His promptings and leadings, as you learn to follow the voice of God in your life, 
As you live and learn Scripture, as we say around you, as you become one who's beginning to see what it means to be a child of God and have the capabilities that God gives you to make a difference in this world for Him, when you live in that place, you live with a new identity and a new purpose. You're able to use all the benefits of this identity. And so really, it's not identity theft when it comes to Jesus. It's identity gift, isn't it? It's identity gift. And the story of Sarai becoming Sarah reminds us that this identity gift, the way we access that which this new identity allows us to live by, is through submitting ourselves to God's leading in our life. Now, sometimes that leading may be things that we, we don't know or are confused about. We're like, okay, this is not turning out the way I thought. These prayers aren't being answered exactly the way I wanted. But that's where it comes to where you just have to do as Sarah did, trust and know that God is at work and know that He has a better handle on our happiness, my happiness, your happiness, the plans that are ahead than we do. And that sometimes, yes, we may be led through the valley of the shadow of death, and we might go through difficult times where we hurt, but if we trust in God who's leading our life, the value of following Him and being with Him, it's all that matters, and then all that important. Identity gift. Sarai becomes Sarah. God releases our full potential when we willingly submit ourselves to His lead. We give over leadership of our life. We give over the performance trap that we get ourselves into and say, I am not defined by my performance, but my performance is what I offer up as a thank you to God. You know, the truth is, is that every one of us, when we are, live this life by our own terms, we all end up really with the name unwanted, Nakusha. But God gives us a new name to live by. Sarah gives us the example how to live by it. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.